It's Thursday, February 6th, and 200 days separate us from the Republican National Convention in Charlotte. From WFAE, Charlotte's NPR News Source, I'm Lisa Worf. And I'm Steve Harrison. And this is the Inside Politics Podcast, the RNC in Charlotte. A lot has happened since our last episode. Iowa caucused on Monday, and President Trump had the support of almost every single Republican who showed up. He now has his first delegates for the convention. The president gave his State of the Union address, and the House Speaker tore it up. His impeachment trial is over, with the Senate, not surprisingly, voting to acquit. On today's episode, we're going to do some compare and contrast between 2012, the last time Charlotte hosted a convention, and now, as we're preparing for the RNC. And those major differences include money and accommodations. As well as freedom of speech, which is where we're going to start today's episode. To do that, we're going to leave the studio for a moment and take you to Uptown Charlotte. So we're sitting on a block right beside Stonewall in Uptown, and we are right beside convention history. This place has changed a whole lot since 2012. And to give you an idea of just how much it's changed, Steve, what you got there? So I am holding in my hand something called Little Mo Mini Cupcakes. Mini cupcakes with coconut cream filling dipped in a chocolate ganache. They're very, very small. And I'm looking at the price, very expensive, $11.50. That's right, we're at Whole Foods. But eight years ago, this was a whole blank field. That's right. There was nothing here uh, for the 2012 Democratic National Convention. And the city decided to put here on this spot something called the Free Speech Zone. And this was right at Stonewall and Caldwell. That's right. Yeah, just a little bit behind us. And the Democratic National Committee said in the contract that they had to have this area for people to come during the convention and to kind of say whatever they wanted to say. They could talk about anything. And the idea of calling it a free speech zone, people made fun of that, and it embarrassed the city. And here's what the former Charlotte city attorney, Bob Hageman, said about that. I recall a citizen speaking to the city council and making the point or asking the question, I thought the entire city was a free speech zone. And that kind of resonated with us, and it changed our thinking. So the city did some rebranding and changed the name of the free speech zone to a speaker's platform. Yeah, they did this because they agreed that all of Charlotte was a free speech zone. And they said that the speaker's platform was more of an amenity. Having that was a DNC requirement. And it had been used in past conventions like 2004 in Boston, where there was a fenced-in area mocked as, you guessed it, the Freedom Cage. Here's MSNBC. From the Tea Party in 1773, Boston has been the cradle of dissent, but protesters in town for the Democratic Convention might feel a little caged in this week. And in recent conventions, this wasn't just limited to Democrats. The RNC had these zones, too. And the same thing happened in 2008 in Denver. There was a fenced-in area near the Pepsi Center, and no one showed up. And in 2012, the Occupy movement was in full force in New York City, protesting social and economic inequality. And in Charlotte, the Occupy movement had been camped out in front of the old City Hall building for four months before the city evicted them in January. That was eight months before the DNC. Here's how we covered that day. Occupy will never die! Evict us! We'll multiply! Occupy! 
So the protesters, there were several dozen of them, surrounded the police and were chanting this as the tents were being removed. You know, they were definitely angry, but not aggressive. And for the DNC, the police actually allowed about 50 Occupy protesters to camp in Marshall Park. Charlotte was expecting a lot of left-wing protesters, and so the city went to the corner of Stonewall and Caldwell, and in this empty field set up a microphone and a platform and waited. Uh, My recollection is, uh, while a lot of people signed up, not many showed up. Not many is a nice way of saying two or three. What happened was the protesters just did their own thing. They marched in the streets and shut down Caldwell and Stonewall for a brief period and got all the way to Trade and Triumph. We will have Tryon. Be patient for a moment. The police will be clearing the streets soon. Thank you. Police ended up stopping them before getting to the Spectrum Center, but for the most part, the city coordinated with protesters and took a pretty hands-off approach. So what about this year? Are we going to have another speaker's platform? Hageman says the city asked the RNC not to have a speaker's platform or Freedom Cage or Free Speech Zone or whatever you want to call it. And when I spoke with him, he was under the impression that there wouldn't be one. But the local host committee for the RNC says there will be another designated area for speeches, but the committee doesn't know where it will be yet and whether anyone will use it. It's important to note that eight years ago, the city thought there would be more protests than actually materialized. And that was the same thing that happened in Cleveland for the 2016 RNC. It was all very tame. But a lot has happened since then, like Charlottesville in 2017, where a woman was killed and dozens injured protesting white nationalists. Hate no longer hides behind hoods. And there was Richmond last month, where a large pro-Second Amendment rally drew thousands of people carrying guns. It ended up being peaceful, but... The governor declared a state of emergency and banned all weapons on Capitol grounds, but outside... That secured area, many demonstrators were heavily armed. Look at them. They look like soldiers there. We're going to take a deep look at security in an upcoming episode. But at this point, Steve, I'm going to hit you up with a few quick questions. Yeah, go for it. Do we know the size of the security perimeter around the arena? Right now, we don't have that answer just yet for Charlotte's RNC. But National Republican officials have said they expect it to be bigger than it was eight years ago. Back then, the absolute no-go area only extended a couple blocks from the arena and the convention center. All of Tryon Street was free and open, as was College Street. What about searches? Because for a long time, police had that ability to search people with big events uptown. Yeah, that's right. Eight years ago, before the DNC, the city passed the Controversial Extraordinary Events Ordinance. And it gave police more leeway in searching bags, and it also banned a lot of items like backpacks and weapons and covering your face with a scarf. And that ordinance stayed on the books after the DNC and was used for a lot of events, the Pride Parade and the Fourth of July fireworks, and civil libertarians were really critical of the city using it. But then Police Chief Kerr said two years ago that it wasn't necessary, and city council repealed it. With the RNC coming, is the city going to bring it back this year? It's hard to say. I talked to the current city attorney, Patrick Baker, and he says a decision on whether to pursue a new extraordinary events ordinance is probably a couple months away. He wouldn't rule out the city bringing back the ordinance or some variation of it. So keeping in mind that pro-Second Amendment rally in Richmond last month, 
could people come to the convention in Uptown Charlotte with their guns on display? Probably not, at least not what we had in Virginia. Here's the deal. North Carolina is an open carry state, and no city ordinance passed for the RNC could trump that. So in theory, someone can come to Uptown during the RNC as long as they're outside of the security zone and carry their weapon. But North Carolina state law also says that you can't open carry during a parade or a demonstration. So the big Richmond Second Amendment protest isn't legal in this state. So we've talked about freedom of speech and security, but what has changed from the 2012 DNC to today when it comes to raising funds and housing politicos? We'll find out right after this quick break on the Inside Politics podcast, the RNC in Charlotte. Hey, everyone. This podcast isn't a speech at a podium. It's a conversation with you. We want to hear from you. What questions do you have about the Republican National Convention and how it will impact Charlotte? Submit your questions now on WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. While you're there, go ahead and subscribe to the Inside Politics podcast on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And we're back. Before the break, we were talking about how the city of Charlotte handled protesters in 2012 and what that may look like this time around. But there's another important difference between 2012 and 2020, namely money. Remember when we started this episode at Whole Foods in Uptown Charlotte? Well, one block away, overlooking the formerly blank field dubbed the Free Speech Zone, is the NASCAR Plaza. On the seventh floor, with sweeping views of Charlotte's skyline, is the headquarters of the host committee for the 2020 RNC. And leading the committee is John Lasseter, a former city council member who narrowly lost the 2009 mayor's race to Anthony Fox. And Anthony Fox was essentially Charlotte's face for the 2012 DNC. And for the next 200 days, Lasseter's focus is raising a good bit of money, $70 million. That pays the convention's bills, things like renting the Spectrum Center, building the huge stage, paying for transportation, and so on. He has a template on how to do this. You guessed it the 2012 DNC in Charlotte. But he's quick to point out it's not a good one. In 2012, they defaulted on a $10 million credit. So that's always in the back of our mind about paying our bills and carrying out our responsibilities. He's talking about a $10 million line of credit from Duke Energy, and the host committee tapped $8 million of that because fundraising came up so short. Duke shareholders ended up paying $6 million of that. And the reason they had so much trouble is that in 2012, the host committee agreed not to take money from corporations, nor money from PACs or federal lobbyists. Individual donations were capped at $100,000. Here's Steve Kerrigan, who was the National Democrats' point person in Charlotte. Now, look, $100,000 is a check that, unless I'm buying a house, I'm never writing. But it kept people from writing, you know, one and two and three and ten million dollar personal checks to, you know, try to keep everything a little bit more um, grassrootsy, if you will, and make sure it's about individuals and not about corporations. That's significant because corporations usually bankroll these conventions. The group OpenSecrets.org looked at the donations to the 2016 conventions when there were no limits on corporate money, and this is what it looked like. AT&T, for instance, gave the Republicans $4.3 million in in-kind donations and $1.5 million to the Democrats. Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Xerox were also big donors to both. Obama had capped donations to his first inauguration at $50,000, and the convention limits were a continuation of that. 
Kerrigan says Charlotte knew full well what it was signing on to. After all, he says those discussions were part of contract negotiations. The Democratic National Committee did lend the host committee experienced fundraisers. Fox, who was the mayor during the DNC, said he spent a huge part of 2012 flying around the country courting donors. Oh, I was definitely involved in raising money. Um, I had to be because for me it was an issue of making sure the city uh, looked as good as it possibly could look. I spent a lot of time. I think I may have racked up 100,000 miles that year. I remember when the 2012 host committee was asked about fundraising, they were very cryptic, saying that fundraising was, quote, right on track. Well, they ended up raising $24 million, $13 million short of the goal. And it should be noted that the host committee had a separate nonprofit that did accept corporate donations for the convention. In theory, that was for things like a street festival and other events to promote the city. But that group did pay for the $5 million cost to rent the arena, which is a pretty essential convention cost. So not much of a ban on corporate contributions then. Exactly. And a few months later, contribution caps were lifted for Obama's second inauguration. No one has done it before or since. I doubt anybody will ever try it again. That's Charlotte Surgeon Dan Murray, who led the host committee eight years ago. He doesn't think that all those rules and restrictions really meant anything. I think the hope and thought was that if we took corporate money out of the center of the convention, that it would be more grassroots and of the people. I'm not sure that that messaging really had much of an impact uh, from a political standpoint. So looking at 2020, Lester expects corporate money will make up a big chunk of the contributions. Uh, We're making great progress. And so we're on track. We raised more money than we had in the budget for 18 and 19. But it's still a lot of the money comes in later. And so we have to work to get our cash in, particularly, you know, we'd like to have as much in hand 60 days out. Right on track. Just like eight years ago, Steve? I mean, I think they may be right. For one thing, taking corporate donations will make it a much easier go. And Trump's campaign has been raising a lot, more than $300 million last year, which Politico says is the most a sitting president ever raised in the year before the election. Take President Obama. Politico reports that Trump has twice as much cash on hand, $158 million, as Obama did at this point before his reelection in 2012. One thing worth mentioning is that back in 2012, the original version of the DNC contract had the city covering any fundraising shortfall. The city nixed that. And for the RNC this year, the city of Charlotte is also not responsible for any fundraising shortfall. To put on a convention, of course you need the money, but you also need the hotel rooms. And to start down this road, we're going to take you, well, right here, WFAE Studios in the university area. Remember Steve Kerrigan? He's the guy who oversaw the 2012 convention. Well, here's what he told me. Vice President, I believe, stayed at a Hilton, though, in uh, University uh, Hilton, I think. Really? The um, University Hilton? I, I believe that's where he stayed because he wanted to stay with the Delaware delegation. I can look at the basement window here at the station, and we are right right next to that Hilton. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where, I'm pretty sure that's where he stayed, yeah. Well, that's unexpected. Yeah, don't get me wrong. The Hilton is nice. It's where the station puts me up when we get a snowstorm, and they need to make sure I make it in early to host Morning Edition. I just didn't think of a vice president staying there, nine miles from the center of the convention, but he did. And that's not so far away. Delegations were staying as far as Concord. And hotels can be a challenge for a smaller city. In 2012, there were only 4,400 hotel rooms in uptown Charlotte. Now there are 5,600 and more than 1,200 under construction. 
though not all those are going to be ready for the convention. And there's going to be an expected 50,000 people here, including the delegates, media, and hangers-on. Now, back to 2012, Kerrigan said the region had plenty of hotels then, but he said many didn't fit the bill of what delegates were expecting. I think not what people were expecting is a nice way of saying not that nice. Yeah, that's, that's right. I heard a lot of complaints about the hotels when I was covering the convention. Well, so the prime spot was the Ritz-Carlton on trade, right next to the Spectrum Center. A lot of people thought that's where President Obama was going to stay. But Kerrigan pointed out when you book a hotel for a president, it's not a handful of rooms. It's more like 100 rooms to accommodate staff and security. And so if you put him in the Ritz, anyone who'd ever been a donor to the host committee or to anybody else would not get a room at the Ritz. Plus, you would shut down traffic in uptown Charlotte anytime you moved anywhere. And so it made total sense to put him out in Valentine. It's just a 20-minute ride uptown in a motorcade, mind you. The resort is relatively secluded with some villas for White House staff. They didn't tell the resort the booking was for the president until just shortly before the convention. And that's a big deal, having a place to stay for high rollers. Politico reports that a $300,000 donation to this year's DNC in Milwaukee gives you two nearby hotel rooms, three hundred grand. <laughs> As of now, we don't know where President Trump will stay, of course. The head of the host committee for the RNC, John Lasseter, mentioned that the president doesn't have to spend the night in Charlotte. Trump owns a golf course in Mooresville, but there's no hotel there. So in theory, he could sleep at Mar-a-Lago and fly to Charlotte on the day he gives his acceptance speech. And talking about speeches, in the last episode, we talked about the controversy over Mayor Vi Lyles and her decision to bring the convention to Charlotte. And how the mayor said, back in 2018 at least, that she won't speak at the convention. Lester is trying to change her mind. I have indicated to her I think it would be appropriate for her to welcome people to her city. And I have not pressed that issue with her in a while. But I see her and talk to her periodically, giving her updates on what we're doing. And I'm hoping she sees the value. The mayor's press manager said last week that, as of now, the mayor is still not speaking. And even though National Republicans really like Mayor Lyles, her press manager noted that she has not received a formal invitation to speak. So we'll see what happens. That was Steve Harrison helping us to navigate the road to the RNC as political reporter for WFAE. Thanks, Steve. Happy to help, Lisa. That concludes today's episode of Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte. New episodes are available every other Thursday. If you want to receive a notification as soon as it's ready, make sure to subscribe to Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. Until next time, I'm Lisa Worf. Catch you real soon on the Inside Politics podcast, the RNC in Charlotte.